Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Let's talk about bomb trains. Kaboom! Bomb trains. Well, that former guy relaxed a rule that governed the transportation of liquefied natural gas, which we're going to call LNG for the rest of this segment. We'll see if the Biden administration does anything to change it. Bomb trains carry LNG through communities. The worst accident of all time happened not too far from my house in Cleveland, Ohio. 131 people died. Thousands were injured, and a whole square mile of my city was destroyed when LNG escaped from a tank, flowed into the city's sewer system, and ignited. Was that last year? 10 years ago? 20 years ago? No. That was in 1944. Temperatures soared to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Street blew up. The streets blew up. It's a huge crater. What a mess, huh? A 30-mile-an-hour impact with one of these train cars is considered disastrous. That's what the, the new rules suggest that trains carrying LNG have to stick to a voluntary 50-mile-an-hour speed limit. Can you imagine all those trains carrying LNG ramming into something at 50 miles an hour? That would be a hell of an explosion. Plus, they're allowed to travel through populated areas. Let's go down to Florida for a minute and talk about bomb trains in Florida. One of the reps, one of the county commissioners went to Washington to try to figure out what was going on. Nobody would talk to him. There's a, a train, train line in Florida called Bright Line, and it was built to speed up transportation between a couple of the major cities. First, people thought it was done just for the idea of people being able to travel back and forth to these cities, but really it was done so that corporations could transport LNG much quicker. Last June, this past June, the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration finalized a rule authorizing the bulk transportation of LNG by rail. Ted Cruz asked Secretary of um, Transportation Pete Buttigieg about his views on a rule, and Buttigieg didn't really come down too hard on it. He said, they're going to take a look at it. If it's something they need to take into account, the safety considerations that are in, it's kind of a wishy-washy answer. When one of the representatives in Florida, Bob Solari, learned about the energy company was planning putting LNG on trains years ago, he went to uh, then-Florida Congressman Ron DeSantis. DeSantis said it was good to see him and glad he was interested, but he didn't really do anything wasn't in DeSantis's career interest to help out the people and make sure that they didn't die in a violent explosion. The train tracks in Florida run right through popular tourist districts. You have to go back to 2013 to really figure out the Florida mess. There was a consortium of companies called All Above Florida. They pitched this project to local, state, and federal officials. High-speed rail service, like the trains in Europe. They were going to refurbish 235 miles of track between Miami and Orlando. What a great idea. You could be Miami Beach in the morning. You could be at Disney World and a couple hours later. No traffic. There were old tracks there. They were going to be modernized. Those upgrades let LNG facilities in Jacksonville send liquefied natural gas on the rails. That all about Florida that I just talked about, that's now called Brightline. But they knew that passengers wouldn't make them profitable. So they went to a secondary source, which was shipping LNG. Marco Rubio and Senator Scott, they're, they're not interested. They don't want to make any comments. So I'll keep tabs on it, and we'll see what happens. Your Halloween would not be the same without me. 
COP26 starts this weekend, stands for the Conference of the Parties. Of course, this is number 26. If it had really worked out well, they wouldn't have even needed number two. Now we're on 26. In two weeks, I'll be giving you an update on the success or failure of the parties that met and how they plan on getting back to focusing on the Paris Agreement and sticking to their goals and promises of trying to keep global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, keep us alive and making sure we don't boil like a frog. COP26 is being held in Glasgow, and here's a few of the goals that they've set. They have to secure global net zero by mid-century, and as I mentioned, keeping temperatures from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. In order to do that, countries need to accelerate the phase-out of coal, curtail deforestation, speed up the switch to electric vehicles, and encourage investment in renewables. Countries have to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. Climate's already changing, we know that. It's going to continue to change even when we reduce emissions. Some of the effects are already devastating. It's going to take hundreds of years to get it back to the way it was, but hopefully we can stop from making it worse. So we have to protect and restore the ecosystems. We have to build defenses, warning systems, and resilient infrastructure and agriculture to avoid loss of homes, livelihood, and lives. And of course, all this costs money. So in order to reach those first two goals, developed countries must make good on their promise to mobilize at least $100 billion in climate finance per year by 2020. Hmm, that was two years ago. And of course, everybody's got to work together. One of the goals is to finalize the Paris rulebook. I mean, can you believe they're still trying to figure out the rule book from the Paris Agreement? And another goal is to accelerate the action to tackle the climate crisis through collaboration between governments, businesses, and society. Wasn't that the point of COP1 in Bonn, Germany? They picked Glasgow to host this conference due to its experience and commitment to sustainability and world-class facilities. So my fingers are crossed, my expectations are very low, and hopefully I'll be surprised. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. Coming to you from the dark, scary, slimy place. Let's do a review of the Earthshot Prize winners. The Republic of Costa Rica won the Protect and Restore Nature category for its plan that pays local citizens to help restore natural ecosystems in urban areas. The Clean Our Air category was won by Takachar. That's the company that makes a tool that creates fuel from agricultural waste. In order to help prevent crop burning, Takachar created a cheap portable tool that attaches to tractors in remote farms. That machine converts crop residue into bioproducts, such as fuel or fertilizer. Revive Our Oceans called for solutions that keep the oceans healthy. And Cora Vita was the big winner. They grow coral on land before replanting it in the ocean. They won first prize. Using Cora Vita's methods, corals can grow up to 50 times faster than traditional coral farming. The fourth award was for AEM Electrolyzer by Anapter. Green hydrogen generator uses hydrogen in place of fossil fuels. The final winner was the city of Milan for Build a Waste-Free World. It's Food Waste Hubs. It's a citywide initiative that cuts waste and tackles hunger. They collect food from supermarkets and restaurants and redistribute it to NGOs that deliver it to those in need. The winner of Fix Our Climate category was Anapter. They make a green hydrogen generator that uses hydrogen in place of fossil fuels, transforming how homes and buildings could be powered in the future. 
Congratulations to all the winners. Well deserved. Each of the winners will bring home a million pounds to use to help upscale their program. By the way, if I sound a little different tonight, last week I went to the Browns game at night, sat outside in the damp weather and got a little bit of a scratchy throat. But we're going to carry on because it's the Halloween episode. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. Longtime listeners know I've picked on Chevron many times, and for good reason. But French oil and gas giant Total Energies joins the club. They downplayed the risks of climate change for decades, even though they were aware of the link between fossil fuels and rising temperatures. New research suggests that by the early 70s, that's 50 years ago, the company had been warned of the potential of catastrophic global warming from its products, but they just carried on business as usual. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. The car rental company Hertz announced recently that it had placed an order for 100,000 Teslas. That's the first step in electrifying their fleet of rental cars. I know if I was going out of town and I had to choose a rental car, the price was comparable, I would totally get a Tesla. This is the largest single purchase of electric vehicle cars ever, and it comes just a few months after Hertz merged from bankruptcy. The order is going to be made of entirely of Tesla Model 3s, and it's going to be shipped out during the next 14 months, although some locations may get one as early as next month. By the end of 1922, electric vehicles will make up about one-fifth of Hertz's global fleet. It's a big percentage, considering that the electric vehicles only account for about 3% of all new car sales. This is interesting because Hertz said it was going to install thousands of new charging stations to accompany its electrifying fleet. We haven't talked about movies in a while. There's a new animated short film that brings attention to children displaced by war and climate change. In the last 10 years, more than 40 million children had to flee their homes because of war and the climate crisis. To raise awareness about this, a team of collaborators came together to make an award-winning animated short film called Footsteps on the Wind. It tells the story of a brother and sister forced to embark on a journey far from home. The director's name is Maya Sandbar. I encourage all of you to watch the movie. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. Well, we couldn't go too long without getting back to Chevron, could we? Chevron's long-dominated oil production in California, massive fossil fuel reserve, it's located in Central California. The company routinely pumps hundreds of thousands of gallons of water mixed with a special concoction of chemicals into the ground at high pressure to shake up shale deposits that releases oil and gas. Yeah, that's fracking. We've talked about fracking a lot. When they're done fracking, it leaves the company stuck with millions of gallons of wastewater laced with toxic chemicals, salts, and heavy metals. Between the late 1950s and 2008, Chevron disposed much of the slurry, that's what that product's called, into eight cavernous areas. They call them ponds, like on Golden Pond. What a nice movie about a family and a 
woman connecting with her father. These are disgusting pawns. Back in the 50s, when Sinatra was just starting his career all the way up till 2008, all that time, poison going into the ground, leaked into the ground in nearby water sources like the California Aqueduct. That's the network of canals that delivers water to farms, Central Valley and cities like Los Angeles. You may have heard of it. About 10 million people there. Well, that's what happened between 1977 and 2017. Over 16 billion barrels of oil-filled wastewater was disposed in unlined ponds in California. Most of those are located outside Bakersfield. There's at least 1,800 wastewater ponds in the San Joaquin Valley's Tulare Basin. 85% of them are unlined. That means water can just seep right into the ground, get right into the... We're drinking all this water. Disposal of oil and gas wastewater is a national problem. It's just not a California problem. Companies use between a million and a half and 16 million gallons of water to frack a single well. They don't know what to do with all this waste. Everybody's trying to find a solution for it. There is no good solution. Where do you hide all that poisoned water? You just don't make it in the first place. That's the only answer. Fracking is a complicated problem, and we've talked about it way back when. There's lots of movies you can watch about it. You can look up Mark Ruffalo's efforts. You can look up Josh Fox's efforts to stop fracking. But please don't sit on the sidelines and just listen to a few minutes of me talk about it. When you're done, look it up online. Look up California water poisoned by frack. Can't pretend it doesn't exist. This is why I'm here. Loss of habitat, pollution, and climate change threaten millions of species. Who is on the chopping block today? When my son lived in southern Florida, he could go outside, go along the boardwalk, and he could see manatees right up, right next to the shore. It was part of the, it was like his favorite part of the day. He loves his manatees. Well, now manatees are starving to death. Hundreds of them are dying along the Florida's east coast because their favorite food, seagrass, and it's dying because algae blooms and contaminants are killing it. It's a 156-mile-long stretch of the Indian River Lagoon. Seagrass thrives in clear, sandy water, but because of algae and pollutants, it makes it harder for the seagrass to survive. So no seagrass, no, no food for the manatees. There's been a sharp rise in manatee deaths from December through May. 677 manatees have died during that time. Typically, only about 150 would. The state has recorded almost 1,000 manatee deaths in 2021. That's still with a couple months left of the year. The previous high was in 2013 when 830 died. Big die-offs in the past have been attributed to algae blooms and unusually cold weather, but the seagrass problem is going to take longer to reverse. Efforts are being made to replant seagrass and restore clam and oyster beds so the mollusks can help filter the water. See, it's all tied together. You wouldn't think that an oyster bed would help keep manatees alive, but this is another example of how Everything is interwoven, and we're disrupting everything and just screwing it all up. Can't even let a manatee live. We're even killing them. Here's your social media minute. Check them out after the show. I have a few apps that specialize in calculating your carbon footprint and what you can do to help diminish it. First one is called Klima, K-L-I-M-A. There's four easy steps. Calculate your carbon footprint. You can offset your carbon by funding climate projects. And Clima also helps you shrink your carbon footprint. Another one is called Capture. And if you're taking a car or a bus or a plane or a bicycle, Capture helps you predict your CO2 emissions and gives you insights about your carbon footprint. They all do pretty much the same thing. Look up online how to track your carbon footprint, and there'll be many, many choices now as we get to the end of 2021 compared to two years ago when there were far fewer choices. Find one you like and just use it for a couple weeks. Some of them make you pay to become a member. Some of them are free, but there's lots of good choices out there now. Give it a shot. Uh-huh. Happy birthday, boy! To celebrate today's birthday boy, we're going way back in the time machine. 
back to November of 1656, when Edmund Halley, or Haley, was born. An English astronomer, mathematician, meteorologist, physicist. For our purposes, we're going to call him Haley, because I've always grown up calling it Haley's Comet. People have uh, debated how to pronounce his last name, but I'm going to call him Haley. He cataloged the southern celestial hemisphere and recorded the transit of Mercury across the sun. He also realized that a similar transit of Venus could be used to determine the distances between Earth, Venus, and the sun. I mean, really, how can anyone possibly do that? It seems impossible to me. Yet, even 500 years ago, people did it. I really need to take a refresher course in physics, math, and science. Haley encouraged and helped fund the major publications for Isaac Newton. From observations Haley made in September of 1682, he used Newton's laws of motion to figure out Haley's comet and when it was going to come back. The comet was named after him. He predicted it would return in 1758, which he did not live to see. He died in 1742. Back in 1698, Haley made sailing expeditions and made observations of the conditions of terrestrial magnetism. In 1718, he discovered the proper motion of the fixed stars. A lot of people say that they call him Haley because people knew up, people in the United States knew rocker Bill Haley. He called his band the Comets. Get it? Bill Haley and the Comets? I mean, it's iconic here in the States. So happy birthday to an old, old timer, Edmund Haley or Edmund Halley. Take your pick. Either way, he was brilliant and lived a long time ago. Well, we talked about a lot of different topics today. We talked about COP26. We talked about train bombs. We talked about Bill Haley and the Comets. I'll be back in two weeks. I hope everybody has a happy Halloween. And until then, I say good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been a breath of fresh earth. Thanks for listening.